Today we are starting into a series for December. I've entitled it Prayers for the Pilgrim. The last couple of years I've basically been walking through the nativity story. Uh, But this year I thought, you know, we need to be considering and thinking about praying about 2024. Praying every day of our lives, but especially as we look forward to this new year. And thinking about our prayer lives. And we are pilgrims. And Scripture tells us that in 1 Peter 2.11, the Scripture says, Therefore, brethren, as sojourners or pilgrims unto this land, abstain from the simple desires which war against our souls. I think that's a mixture of King James and New King James, but that's it. Uh, (laughs) But we are pilgrims and sojourners. I think in the NIV it says we are aliens and strangers unto this world. And so you're lucky. I almost named it Alien Prayers, Okay. I come really close. I was, I was praying through it, and I thought that might be a little strange because people may not understand it exactly. Uh, but I decided, after, after much prayer and looking at it, we are pilgrims. Just to give you an insight about where we get this word from. You know, pilgrims, especially coming out of Thanksgiving, is something that we think about. The schools usually teach a good bit. I remember in elementary school, you had your plays and all that kind of stuff, uh, considering and thinking of the pilgrims. Well, The settlers of Plymouth, Massachusetts in American colonial history, the first permanent colony in New England, was referred to as Pilgrim Fathers. Of the 102 colonists, uh, 35 were members of the English Separatist Church, which they deemed a radical faction of Puritanism, who had fled earlier to Leiden, the Netherlands, to escape persecution at home. Seeking a more abundant life along with religious freedom, the separatists negotiated with a London stock company to finance a pilgrimage to America. Now, a fundamental belief of the separatists was the idea of the gathered church. This was a fundamental idea. And it was, they believed that the gathered church was founded by the Holy Spirit, not man or the state. And believing that true Christian believers should seek out other Christians and together form their churches. Separatists emphasized the right and responsibility of each congregation to determine its own affairs without having to submit those decisions to the judgment of any higher human authority. That notion stood in contrast to the territorial basis of the Church of England in which everyone in a certain area was assigned to the parish church and each local parish submitted to the oversight of the larger church hierarchy which is very much what we believe as Southern Baptist Baptist churches today, is very much what we believe as well. Every church is autonomous. The the Walker Baptist Association, we work in cooperation with them. Okay, We work in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, but none of them can tell us what to do. We make decisions for our body of believers right here. And if we believe this is wrong for our church, we hold that that's wrong for our church based on Scripture. Not based on what Walker Baptist says. Not based on what the Southern Baptist Convention says. Because at some point, who knows, they may falter like many of the other denominations and make poor decisions. We're going to make decisions on the Word of God. And that's where we're going to stand. I hope and pray the Southern Baptist Convention does not fall off the face of the earth and start going into heretical practices. But if they do, we're not following them. We're going to follow the Lord, and we're going to follow the Word of God. And the separatists were much of the same way. The separatist movement was initially illegal in England, and many of its adherents were persecuted by the state and its church, often labeled as even traitors. 
Many separatists fled England for more tolerant lands. One such group left England for Holland in 1608, and in 1620, some of them, the Pilgrims, famously settled at Plymouth, Massachusetts. The Plymouth separatists uh, cooperated with the Puritans who settled the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. And although the Puritans had originally hoped to uh, purify and reform the Church of England, in New England they accepted the congregational form of church government established by the Pilgrims, the autonomous local church of the gathering. Thus, the churches of the Separatists and the Puritans became the Congregationalists of the United States. These first settlers, initially referred to as the Old Comers, and later as the Forefathers, did not become known as the Pilgrim Fathers until two centuries after their arrival. A responsive chord was struck with the discovery of a manuscript of Governor William Bradford, referring to the saints who had left Holland as pilgrims. At a commemorative bicentennial celebration in 1820, orator Daniel Webster used the phrase Pilgrim Fathers and the term became common usage thereafter. Now, I give you this brief overview of pilgrim history because we are still pilgrims today as those who have called on Christ as Lord and Savior. And we, too, believe in the autonomous local church with no hierarchy of human rule, but Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd and our chief cornerstone of the church, unlike the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church of today. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Anyone who has called on Christ is a pilgrim in a foreign land. That's who we are. We could refer to ourselves as aliens, foreigners, and strangers. Our homeland gets changed at the moment of salvation from an earthly, temporal residence to a, to a heavenly, eternal residence. We have a mansion built for us in the Lord's kingdom. Jesus tells us that. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not true, I wouldn't have told you so. And I'm going to come back and get you. I go to prepare because my father has many mansions. And he said he's going to prepare a place for us. So when we consider this, but when we consider that physical distance, but spiritual present truth, we can feel at times lonely or isolated, can't we? There's times we can feel this way. We may feel far from home, at times forgotten. But, but the truth is, the Lord has considered us and he thinks of us often. Scripture tells us in Psalm 8, 4, and you know, just recently we went through Hebrews, and from Hebrews 2, 6, the Scripture says, What is my man that you are mindful of him? That means the Lord has been thinking about us. How amazing is that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has been thinking about us. But the thing is, do we think about Him? We should be grateful people that we are, we are in a foreign land. When we receive Christ, our homeland is elsewhere. No longer should I look around this place and go, man, why is nothing the way it should be? Well, the things around us are as they should be. Our homeland is elsewhere. It's in heaven in eternity with the Father and the Son. That's our homeland. And so how do we commune? How do we, how do we get past this potential feeling of loneliness, this potential feeling of isolation? How do we get past that while we're on this pilgrimage that we are on? Well, we pray. We pray. We talk to the one who is the Lord of the land that we now are citizens of. We have prayers as pilgrims. 
And these are prayers for the pilgrim that we're going to be looking at today. So if you have your copy of God's Word, look at Matthew chapter 6. There we're going to read verses 5 through 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Now just to give you some context, in verses 1 through 4, the Lord talks to him about deeds. Okay, he talks to him about deeds in 1 through 4. Then beginning in verse 5 through 18, I believe it is. I'm not going to cover all that today. Somewhere along in there, he talks about prayer. But then in the next part, he talks about fasting. And he's talking about how we should do these things. And none of them should be for man, but for God. Okay? Our reward is not here on heaven. The reward for our deeds is not here, is, is not here on this earth, but in heaven. The reward for our prayers may not always be evidenced here on earth, but in heaven. The reward of our fasting is not to be always seen, and it may not always be seen here on earth, but it's always seen before our Father in heaven. So as we look through chapter 6, that's what, the, that's what the Lord's trying to tell us. He's like, look, look beyond the present and look to me. Look to my presence. Because the Lord says my presence is more important than any other's recognition on this earth. Let's read here, beginning in verse 5. Jesus is speaking. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, when you pray, notice that, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So as we look at this passage of Scripture today, we look in chapter 6 and we can see four things about prayers for the pilgrim. As I was walking through this and looking at it, we see that prayers for the pilgrim will often, will occur often. This should be, our prayer life should not be random or sporadic. It should be something that's consistent, ongoing. Prayers for the pilgrim are not to be prideful. We're going to walk through that in just a moment. Prayers for the pilgrim are to be spoken privately. And I'll expound on that because that could be kind of confusing to hear right off the bat. Okay? And then prayers for the pilgrim are to be straightforward. They're to be straightforward. So let's look at that first part. It should be often. Prayers for the pilgrim will be often. In verses 5, 6, and 7, you see the phrase, when you pray. When you pray. This affirms the fact that those who are from another land, as we are, pilgrims, foreigners, aliens, strangers, will be praying citizens. We are going to be praying citizens. We who have joined our lives with Christ and his kingdom will inevitably be talking to the Lord and King of our world and residency. We should be lifting up our prayers to him and talking to him. And listen, there is not a confusion as to the consistency of our prayers or if situations will arise to call for prayer. But rather that our prayer will be ongoing to further strengthen our relationship with our Lord and King. Will our prayers be ongoing? That's the question. We will have situations that arise that call for prayer. We think about it from children all the way up to our senior saints, all the way around. 
Kids go to school, man, I've got to study for that class. Lord, please help me make an A on this test. Right? I mean, every one of us at some point had prayed that prayer. You know what I mean? At some point. God, forgive me, I left my homework at the house. You know, may, may the teacher show grace today, you know. <clears throat> Even though I don't have a dog, no, I shouldn't lie like that, you know. Um, th- those things, you know, we, we, we pray and we ask God to help us out. And God hears those prayers. I do believe he does. But so, just because he hears them doesn't mean that he's going to answer them in the way that's favorable to you at the moment. Okay, that's one thing to be mindful about. But our prayers, there's, it, it's going to arise. There's going to be situations that arise that call for prayers. But the thing is, are we going to have an ongoing prayer life and relationship with Christ to know this is him who is answering me? This is he who hears me and answers. When our Lord said, when you pray, he knew the need because he too experienced life in a way that required him to pray to the Father. I mean, we see this. We know in Scripture, Jesus would often excuse himself to a hillside or to a place of isolation to spend time in prayer to the Father. Often he would excuse himself. He would go to the mountainside, the hillside. He would isolate himself. He would take some folks with him and he'd say, no, you hang out here. I'm going to go a little further. But he spent time in prayer. And we should know if Jesus spent time in prayer, you know you and I need time in prayer. We need time in prayer. We need to take the same actions that Jesus took. Tony Evans wrote in his book, Kingdom Prayer, he said, Paul culminated his strategy session on spiritual battles, now he's referencing Ephesians 6, with this one powerful method of repeated, constant, persevering, all-encompassing prayer. All prayer, petition, pray at all times. Pray at all times. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we, should be, that we should pray in all situations. Effective prayer is what you and I need because we are in a battle. We are in a battle every day for our heart and our mind. We are in a battle. And we need to be people who pray. And in the midst of a spiritual battle, we are in a battle between good and evil. And prayer is our primary weapon for victory. Prayer is our primary weapon for victory. As I was reading this week, I come across this account. It said, once there was a survey done by a mainline Christian denomination that indicated 25% of its members admit that they never pray. Never. 25% admitted they never pray. Now add this to the number of people who'd be honest enough to tell you that their prayer life is sporadic or dull at best, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out that one glaring reason people are so dissatisfied with their prayer life is simple, they don't pray. They don't pray. It's pretty easy to be dissatisfied in something that you never do, but you're thinking you know you should be doing. Now think about the ridiculous analogies. A football team that never practices. An orchestra that never tunes its instruments. A farmer who never plants any crops. A sales rep who never calls on his clients. An artist who never buys herself any paint. To never do something is the worst way to get any better at it. To never do something is the worst way to get any better at it. But we're too busy, we say. We say we're too busy. I think in the future, our social media timelines, our hunting gear, our fishing gear, our hobby investments will say otherwise. It will all say otherwise. 
Our schedules stay overlapped with nonstop activities that heap uh, us about two days and ten minutes behind all the time. And though our demands stressfully require us to keep the plates spinning constantly, somehow the power stays on, the bills get paid, the dogs get fed, whether we pray or not, so we don't. And yet we still expect prayer to work on demand when the wheels come off or the kids get sick, when we resort to pleading with a God we largely ignore during the normal routines of life. I think we all can see ourselves in that mirror. I think we all can. Prayerlessness makes absolutely no sense. Yet just about all of us have been guilty of it. And of foolishly putting the blame on God for not answering prayers we never pray. As pilgrims in a foreign land, we must pray and we must pray often. This should not be something that's not known of us or named of us. But every believer in Jesus Christ, every growing disciple of Christ, will have a growing and expanding prayer life. If you have no prayer life, you probably don't have much of a praise life. And if you don't have much of a prayer life, your praise life is going to be weak and your participation is going to be down or non-existent. And I believe, as I was talking this week through some of this stuff, and I was tossing some ideas out there, I just think there's three things. There should be prayer, there should be praise, and there should be participation of every single disciple that, that is called on the name of Jesus Christ in a local church somewhere. If you're not plugged in in some way, somewhere, in those ways, in a local church, you might want to think about your faith. Prayer life should be strong. Your praise life should be strong. And your participation in, in the life of Christ and in the life of the local church should be strong. Secondly, prayers for the pilgrim are not to be prideful. Look there in verse 5. Look there in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by who? Men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They have their reward. Prayers for the pilgrim are not to be prideful. You know, it's flattering to be asked to pray. But the prayer offerer isn't as important as the prayer answerer. The prayer offerer is not as important as the prayer answerer. And we need to remember that. You know, it's, it's very, it is flattering. Don't get me wrong, it is flattering. Just a few weeks ago, I was invited to pray up at the, the co-op up here, up the street. They're going to be moving from over here by Farmstead Baptist to up here on Highway 5, real close to us here. And so I was invited to come pray and, and open up their, um, in their effort of opening up that facility that they're going to be expanding to in the near future. It was flattering. It was. But listen, it ain't about me. It ain't about me. I'm a vessel, one that's been broken, that's been molded back together by the great, uh, by the great potter. Uh, he, he has put me back together, and I am a broken person. So it ain't about the one who offers the prayer. It's about the one who answers the prayer and receives it. And it's, it, is, it is nice to get to be considered but in that consideration, I need to remember the glory does not belong to me, nor does the glory belong to you. The glory belongs to God and God alone. And when we get confused, that's when problems arise. That's when problems arise. Our prayers, although at times may be public, on behalf of our fellow believers or our family at the dinner table, our prayers need to be heartfelt and true. 
They need to be heartfelt and true. We need to be people that have a real relationship with the Lord with real words from our real lives. There's nothing wrong with catching a, a, something that somebody has said uh, before. You may have heard this said, Lord, don't let my left hand know what the right hand is doing. Maybe you've heard that said before. And there's a lot of little catchphrases that people have said over the years. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when, but when you don't even really know what that means and you prayed it in a prayer, then that doesn't mean anything. Have you ever done that? I have. Can I just be honest with you? I've done that before. You know, here I raise mine, Ebenezer. You ever thought about that? Anybody ever know what that means? We've sung that hymn many a times. You know, what in the world? Is that, is that my cousin, Ebenezer? Ebenezer Scrooge? You know, what, what am I raising here? You know what I mean? We got to know what we believe. We got to know the word of God. We don't need to just be saying vain repetitions that just come to our minds. I've heard so-and-so say that. I'll say that. No, what? God's, talk, God's called on you to have a relationship with him. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about public prayers next week, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. But at the same time, we need to be mindful that our prayers be heartfelt and true. Our prayer life is not a prideful prayer life. If there's any place that humility should be the standard and expected posture, it would be in communication with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We shouldn't admire the opportunity in prayer for us to be gazed upon or heard, but that the Lord is cherished and He is listened to. It is not our standing that gave us the privilege of prayer, but rather Christ's crucifixion and resurrection that gives us that posture of prayer and praise. We don't come in our holiness and in our glory and in our worthiness. We come in our humility before the throne of God with prayer. Now, we can come boldly, but we come boldly because we come because we're covered in the blood of Christ and in the righteousness of Christ, not in what we've done, because we've done nothing. But it's all in what Christ has done that we may come boldly before the throne of grace. When we get that recognition, we must remember to deflect the glory. It is not ours in the first place. The glory belongs to the Lord. So let us direct everyone to him and not to ourselves. You know, but we need to be thankful and say, Lord, please, don't let me get absorbed in the, in the praise because it ain't for me. The praise is not for me. The praise is for the Lord. And it's the same thing with prayer. It is a privilege and it is an honor to be asked to pray on behalf of everyone else present in the room. It's an honor and it's a privilege. So we don't need to take that lightly, but we need to make sure that we choose our words carefully. Choose our words carefully because prayers of the pilgrim are not to be prideful. Let's look at the next point. Prayers for the pilgrim are to be spoken privately. And I'll explain. Look there in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He will reward you openly. Now, this is, excuse me, our personal prayers should be offered to the Lord privately. We are to raise our issues before the Lord in the closet or in the privacy of our homes. Our personal issues are not issues for everyone to know. 
We, we do know that Scripture tells us that the prayers of a righteous person does avail much. It accomplishes much. We do know that. But that is in regard to discipleship and accountability when we think about those things. It may refer to a small group to come and pray over an individual that has a specific need. At more serious times when the issue is public knowledge and the person afflicted desires it, public prayer is powerful and biblically sound. You know, we have prayed over people here in this church publicly because they're dealing with things that they desire for the congregation and people of faith that believe in Christ, they want them to pray over them. That is absolutely biblical. So don't misunderstand one portion of Scripture over the whole of Scripture, okay? Don't misunderstand that. The Bible is not saying that you are not to pray publicly. But what the Bible is saying and what, what the Lord is saying is that the first thing we need to do as individuals is have a prayer life of our own where we know the Father's voice and the Father knows our voice. And it's not about our praise. It's not about our pride. It's about His glory. So before we offer any public praying on behalf of anyone else, we got to offer private praying on behalf of ourselves. If our relationship is weak, I mean, the, I mean, you know, this isn't like conduit and electrical lines, but it's, you know, we usually use that kind of mindset and all that kind of stuff like that. But, but we need to have a healthy, private walk with Christ before we start thinking that we need to start showing ourselves publicly as though we do. So this is what Jesus is, talk, Jesus is talking about. When you pray, shut your door. Pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees the secret re will reward you. The Father will reward us publicly when we privately come before Him in prayer. Now the goal of a private prayer should not be to be recognized publicly. But it is to be faithful and to know that he is faithful to do that for us. We need to know that. We need to know that he is faithful. And now some may use this text as a framework against public prayer as a whole. But this is clearly not the case. And many times in scripture prayers are voiced and lifted to the Lord on behalf of the people of the Lord. So this is not, this is not a call against public prayer. But rather a call to honorable Appreciative and selfless prayers. Ken Hiphill wrote in his book, The problem is not public prayer, but praying for effect. Whether in public or in private, we can and should pray with the singular desire of communicating with our Father. And this is big. And receive the reward of His presence. Receive the reward of his presence. Greater than receiving the reward of the answered prayer that we're praying is the fact that we should have such a faithful prayer life that his presence is enough. But I don't think we spend enough time in our prayer closets, in our prayer rooms, and on our knees to truly know. Sometimes if even a prayer has been answered. We don't slow down enough for the Lord. We've got to slow down. And we've got to receive the reward of His presence. 
And lastly, the prayers of the pilgrim are to be straightforward. Straightforward. Look there, verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And when I, when I say this, or to be straightforward, this, this framework of this part says, For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So be straightforward. Be straightforward. Don't beat around a bush. We, we, we need to offer our heartfelt prayers to the Lord and not be roundabout saying all kind of vain repetitions, repeating the same old, same old. It needs to be heartfelt for today, heartfelt for the moment. little context here. The first century Greeks and Romans had two sides of prayer, formal and magical. Since the pagan gods of their religious mythology each controlled some aspect of nature. Mythology. <laughs> Pronounce that weird. Uh, of their religious mythology, each controlled some aspect of nature, but couldn't control their own behavior. These gods couldn't. Prayer was the butter that greased the palms of the pantheon. And just in case the gods didn't hear or remember it the first time, these pagan worshipers would often pray the same prayer over and over to make sure they had gotten some heavenly attention to convince whichever god they wanted that this petition was worth rewarding. Just over and over and over. Now this is different from the idea of perseverance in prayer, which Jesus later commends and encourages. What the Greek and Romans were doing were creating what we now know as mantras. That's what they were doing. And this is like the New Age advocates repeating of, of a certain phrase or the Muslim repetition of Shahada. It's those same type things. And we can read a more precise account of this type of babbling when we go back and we look at Elijah and the account there of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're out there doing their mantras and they're doing all their stuff and their God's not listening. And Elijah's like, you know, where's your God? Maybe your God's busy. Maybe your God's doing this. Maybe your God's busy in the restroom. You know, maybe your God, and I mean, he says that in the text. He's, he's saying, maybe your God is distracted. You know, all these different things. But Elijah gets up there and he prays a straightforward prayer. Heartfelt in the moment for the need. And God meets that need. And God meets that need. Why would God put such prayers as Elijah's in the Bible? One reason is to show us that long prayers, desperate pleading, and mechanical rantings are not required to request help from the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, sometimes you may have a long prayer. It doesn't mean that. Sometimes you might be desperate in your pleading. But they're not required. Okay? What's heartfelt? What's heartfelt? What is heartfelt? Sometimes we're just mimicking what we've always heard. We don't need to mimic what we've always heard. We need to speak to our Heavenly Father as though we've got a relationship with Him, just like you would speak to somebody every single day on this earth. Not in a disrespectful way. You know, you still honor Him. He is holy. He is set apart. But still at the same time, it's a relationship that grows every time. You know, 
We, we, we've got to be people who communicate well with him. We've got to be people who communicate well with him. As the Lord told us, written in verse 8, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now this is not for us to not ask, but rather to communicate in the truth and fact that Jesus desires to hear from us and grant us answers to our prayers and petitions. And Jesus isn't holding his ears shut to you. He isn't going, I don't, you know. Jesus isn't canceling you because of another sin. He's not doing that either. Jesus listens intently and responds as the one who knows the best outcome for you and his glory. God knows our needs. Sometimes we don't know what we need. Sometimes we know what we want. Sometimes we know our needs. You know what I mean? It's, you know, it's pretty simple many a times what our needs are. But sometimes we get our wants confused with our needs. And then we think God needs to give us all of our wants. When God says, I'm supplying for your needs. First, be grateful for the needs. And I, I may grant you your wants. But you need to be appreciative of me meeting your needs. I used to say that I'll pray for it once and leave it with the Lord. I used to say that all the time when I was younger. I'd say, you know what? I've already said it to the Lord. The Lord knows my need. I don't have to say it again. I don't believe that's, I don't believe it's wrong, but I don't believe it's right either. I believe the Lord needs, wants to know our hearts. And if, and if it is something that is burdening, passionately burdening your heart about some, maybe someone coming to faith or, or someone turning from sin or, or you know, something happening in the church or whatever it may be, I don't think God's saying, tell me one time and that's it. You, know, you ain't got to talk to me about that again. I've heard enough of it. That's good. I don't think God's saying that. I think he's saying, though, let it be heartfelt. Do you really have a desire for this? Because maybe if you have a desire for it, maybe it is that that's where you need to be. Specifically talking about like a ministry in the church. Man, we really need this. Really, need... Well, maybe that's where the Lord needs you to be because he's burdening your heart with that need. Because not everybody sees the church through the same lens of eyes, obviously. So be, 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 be thinking about that. You know, when you pray, pray. And pray heartfelt prayer. Sometimes we need to speak to the Lord to unburden our heart from wants or sins that are hindering us from being at our full submission to his lordship. 